1872, Salathiel Fisher plotted land in the area we now know as Fishers. Settlers came and a community was born. In this series of podcasts, I will be exploring the history of our local community. Here is the latest installment. My guest on today's podcast is Diane Hunter. She's a writer. She writes a blog and has done a lot of writing about the Miami American Indian tribe. Uh, she uh, writes a very informative blog, which I had a chance to, to read uh, just before we uh, did this uh, podcast and found it fascinating and we'll refer to some of her writing in this. This is part of a series and this is our first in a series of podcasts dealing with the history of the Fishers area and I think it is fitting that we begin with some of the Native American history here. First of all I'd like to thank Ashley Elrod and Cassidy Robertson from the city staff here in Fishers for helping uh, put this together. So Diane thank you very much uh, for joining me today. It's a pleasure to have you. I'm glad to talk with you. Thank you. And uh, I'm going to ask you about something which you know much about, and you are a noted expert, and that's the Miami Indian tribe. And if you read Fisher's history, and I've read some of our local historians and what they've had uh, uh, to say about the Native American, this is what we know about the Native American history of what we now call the Fisher's area, uh, a lot has been written about the Lenape and the uh, Delaware tribes, yet if you look at the Miami, they have a, I think, a rich and even longer connection to this place we now call Hamilton County and Fishers. So I would like to start out just asking you, tell me what you uh, know about that history. Well, our history began, we don't know how long ago. Um, our origin story tells us that we came out of the water on the St. Joseph River, um, somewhere near South Bend, Indiana. Um, and we were um, a unique and different people at that moment. And we came to be called Miamiake or Miami people. Over time, we left the place uh, on the St. Joseph River and moved out throughout what is today Indiana, Western Ohio, Illinois, um, and that land came to be known to us as Miamionge, the land of the Miami. And it was recognized by other tribes as the land of the Miami. Over time, after the Americans came, the Delaware, as well as the Shawnee and other tribes were pushed west. They were located further east in, in what's now the United States but they were pushed west and they were pushed into what is now Indiana. And recognizing this as Miamiange, they asked our permission to live here. Um, and the Delaware asked if they could live on our land. We recognize the Delaware as our grandfathers. And so of course we said to them, you, uh, as our grandfathers, you can live in Miamiange. And the same thing with the Shawnee, they're our elder brothers. And when they asked to come, we said, yes, of course, you can live in Miamiange. And so that's how it came that um, after, we had been here for hundreds of years, uh, the Shawnee and the Delaware also came uh, into this area. 
I found it interesting that the term Miami, of course, the way we spell that is anglicized. Uh, you would use different num numerals in, in, in your native uh, language. But what is that? Miami has a very special meaning in your language. What is that? Well, it, it has come to be known as the downstream people. Um, it was probably given to us by somebody else, some other tribe, um, for whom we were downstream. Interesting. Um, yes, yeah, so that's the origin of, of that, that name. I have a question before we go on, because I've always been fascinated by this. I read one of your blog posts, and, and you were kind of going through some people of the past, some names from the past. And uh, what you had is, is, is the original Native American name, uh, an English name. Uh, I'm curious, you know, in, in, in our society today, when uh, a baby is named, it is usually the mother and father decide what the name will be. In, in Native American culture, how was the decision made uh, about how to name a child? In Miami culture, and I can only speak to our culture, not to other, other uh, Native peoples, but in our culture, um, the child was often named by um, an elder woman in the in the community. Um, uh, it could be the parents, but often it's it was an elder woman, um, uh, probably sometimes an elder man as well, but but often the, the elder woman would um, help them name the child. Let me go back to our history here because uh, when I read some local historians, they always say that uh, the Miami tribe is what was described as the first excuse me, <clears throat> identifiable tribe uh, in this area. That was in the 1690s as Europeans began to uh, to settle the area. Uh, and and uh, what I would like to ask you is is just about about all of that. I think it was. Uh, you you mentioned that as far as anyone can tell and on what history we know that the Miami lived in this area and, and and inhabited this area for hundreds of years but we really don't know how long i'm just curious what do we know about that history before the europeans were here so as i said we came out of the water and we don't know because we didn't measure time in the same way that europeans did so we only have time designations once the Europeans came. But we do know a lot about how we lived. Um, we know that um, we had autonomous villages. So the as we came out of the water, created one village and then moved out, each group would create an, a, a, its own village and they were autonomous. Our culture was the same, our language was the same, but politically they were, they were autonomous. Um, and we lived um, with very distinct roles for men and women. Men had their role and women had our role. And we, um, the men were primarily outside the village. They were out hunting and fishing. They were um, trading with, initially with other tribes and later with Europeans. Um, and they were the ones to go to battle. And when the battle was over, they would go to make peace. So you can see those are activities that keep them outside of the village. Um, the women, on the other hand, ran the village. Um, we were the farmers. 
Um, we gardened, we gathered food. We made everything that our families needed to use. Um, the children stayed with us until the boys were old enough to go with their fathers. Um, so everything that happened in the village was really under the control of the women. And in fact, we had four chiefs in each village. There was a, a, a male civil chief and a male war chief. And there was a female chief and a female war chief. And so the men were really organized by the, the, the male civil chief while the, the women um, and their activities were uh, organized, coordinated by the, the female chief. That is very fascinating. Uh, were they co-equals in terms of these leadership positions, the men and the women? Uh, I mean, I saw, uh, at that time, you know, uh, in, in American society, the European society, that was not the custom. Uh, talk a little more about how that dynamic worked with the men and the women chiefs. They worked closely together. So, for example, uh, let's say the men want to go to war. The men leaders, the male leaders and the female leaders would meet together in council and talk about whether that should happen. And the thing is, the, as I said, the women made all, everything. So if they don't want the men to go to war, the men aren't going to have the supplies, they aren't going to have the food, they aren't going to have what they need to go to war. So it had to be a joint decision because the women could, I don't know that it happened that way, but the women could refuse to supply. And that was the end of that. Uh, the same thing with making peace um, because the women made everything. When you went to a peace negotiation, you brought gifts, but if the women didn't supply the gifts, the men couldn't, couldn't do that. Um, obviously, both men and women supplied food for our community in different ways. The men by hunting and fishing and the women by um, growing uh, products and gathering uh, food. Um, so there was a, an understanding that we were reliant on what everyone did. The men couldn't survive without the women. The women couldn't survive without the men. And we valued both equally. Very, very interesting. Um, for that time in history, I, I would think that would be, and that was, what you're telling me is that is the the form of governing themselves that go back as far as, uh, as you know your history, correct? Yes, yes. Very interesting. One thing that anyone who studies, excuse me, American history knows, and I think it's one of the black marks on, on the history of the United States of America is the Trail of Tears, which was the you know, movement of Indians in, in, under horrible circumstances in the American South and West. But you wrote a, a blog post that I found fascinating, and it was about something that happened in 1846 you described as the removal. I'd like you to talk more about that if you can. So the Trail of Tears was not just from those tribes in the Southeast, but that's that's what they call it, and it's the best known. Um, other tribes, um, all tribes were removed from Indiana in one way or the other. Um, and our removal, we were the last to be removed from Indiana. Um, 
over time, we had been ceding land to the United States as Americans came further and further onto Miami, onto our land. Um, they wanted treaties so and for us to cede the land to them. And so we had been ceding more and more land over um, since 1795 until 1840. Um, we ceded the Great Miami Reserve, which is just north of Hamilton County. Um, Kokomo is kind of the center of the Great Miami Reserve, if that gives you a sense of where that is. So in this Treaty of 1840, we ceded that Great Miami Reserve in exchange for land west of the Mississippi in what is today Kansas. Um, and since 1826, the United States had been pressuring us to remove with each treaty, they wanted us to remove, and we said, no, no, no. But in 1840, we agreed to remove within five years. But no one, no one wanted to go. Not even the man who signed the treaty wanted to go. And so we put it off. We can't go this year. We have to harvest our crops. We can't go this year. We have to sell our, our privately owned land, because some Miami people did own um, individual land. We kept coming up with reasons we couldn't go. And so then in late September, 1826, excuse me, 1846, the US Army arrived at our villages and started rounding us up and took us to a prison camp in Peru, Indiana. And on October 6th, they boarded us onto canal boats on the Miami and Erie Canal, excuse me, the Wabash and Erie Canal and took us from our homes. Um, took us into what is now Ohio, onto the Miami and Erie Canal, and uh, to Cincinnati, where we boarded steamboats that took us to what is today Kansas City, Missouri. And from there, we walked 50 miles south to our new reservation in what is today Kansas. Yes, and I, I think that's an important point you made, that when people study American history, the Trail of Tears is is always uh, you know, the what, what what is discussed, but yet uh, there were other migrations that were forced, and this one in Indiana, I think, is is important to to, to know, and uh, it is called the removal of, of, of in, in terms of is that a term you gave it or something that your historians labeled it? No, I didn't. We've been calling it our our removal, our forced removal. Um, I don't know how long, um, but certainly for uh, a while, and certainly before I started writing about it. Do we know how many uh, of the Miami tribe did not survive that, that trek? There were about 325 people that began the journey. Um, there were a couple of births during the journey. Um, by the end of the year, so um, within... A couple of, of months after we had arrived in, in our new reservation, there were at least 30 deaths as a result of the removal. So about 10% of us who were removed died as a result of the removal. Well, I felt it was just important uh, to, for everyone to know that part of, of the Miami history. I think we all need to face that, uh, our, our history uh, head on and understand what happened. 
I would ask you to, maybe this is a, a much better question to ask, and, and I would like for you to explain as best you know it, what life was like for people of the Miami tribe when they were living in this area before the Europeans began to settle? What was life like for people in these tribes? So as I said, talked about the men and women having specific roles. Um, we lived in um, what we call a, a wikiame. Um, in English, you would say a wigwam. Um, we did not live in teepees. Teepees are, are for native peoples um, in the Plains states further west, we lived in, in these uh, wikiame um, wigwams. Um, and they are more dome-shaped. Um, and to make them, we would um, bend saplings into the dome shape. And then our women would gather cattail reeds and sew them into mats. And that made the walls of the wikiame. Um, we don't have a word for indoors or outdoors because we pretty much lived outdoors. Um, the Wikiami was a place to sleep um, and a place to store our things. Um, and so our, our days were um, spent in the summer. The women were farming um, and the children would, would help them. Um, they also were gathering plants. Um, in the springtime, we would go to the sugar bush um, the, to do maple sugaring. Um, it was a, a wonderful source of energy. By, by late winter, our food sources were diminishing. Um, and so this was a big calorie boost <laughs> to have the, the maple sugar that we would make. Um, that was, would be the women and the children and even the older women would go um, to help make the, the maple sugar. Um, in the winter, um, the men, but also even whole families would leave the village to, to go hunting. Um, and um, I don't know that the villages were emptied. Uh, probably the older people who uh, were not as capable of traveling would stay and perhaps some others as well. But we um, lived in, in these villages most of the year and um, we know that that um, we played games. We have um, examples of games that we were playing when the Europeans arrived, um, including lacrosse, um, which apparently was invented by the Iroquois, but it spread to other tribes uh, very quickly. And um, we were playing lacrosse um, when, when they arrived. And um, it was a, a game for fun. It was also a game that we would play um, maybe to honor someone. In fact, I think the first game that the French uh, played was in honor of, of them, to recognize them. Um, so we we did have, have games that we played um, as well as, as our work. Yeah, we are. Uh, I'm I'm in Fishers, Indiana. You're in Fort Wayne. Uh, through uh, the miracle of, of electronics, we can speak uh, uh, on an interview like that. But uh, I'm curious. Uh, my understanding is about six thousand people today identify themselves as enrolled in the Miami Tribe. I'm just curious. Uh, where do they live? Do they tend to congregate in one place? Are they scattered? Uh, what can you tell us about that? 
So due to our forced removal, um, and we were actually removed twice. I only <laughs> took you to Kansas, but about 20 years later, the United States wanted us to remove again. And we ended up removing to northeastern Oklahoma, where the tribe, um, our seat of government is there today. So as a result, we have three population, population centers in northeastern Oklahoma, eastern Kansas, and northern Indiana. But the reality is, due to a number of factors, economics being a major one, we have Miami citizens living all over the United States. Interesting. And and I, I am aware that you have uh, uh, a place at the old Peru-Indiana High School. Uh, tell us about that, that. That does not belong to us. That's a, a group of Miami people but that own that, um, but they are not part of the, the Miami tribe of Oklahoma. Oh. Good um, to, the tribe does not own that. Yeah. Okay, that is that is good to know. Thank you for for mentioning that. Uh, I I would you touched on a lot of things, but I'm going to give you a chance to maybe touch on. I know you've written extensively and spoken extensively about the history of the tribe, but as, as Fisher's uh, celebrates its 150 years uh, sesquicentennial, what would you like people living in Fisher's today? Uh, to know about the people that inhabited this land for so many years before 1872? I think the most important thing for people to know is that we're still here. We are not a people of the past. We are a living people um, who have a long heritage in what is today Indiana. But we have our tribal government in northeastern Oklahoma. Uh, just a few weeks ago, we all gathered uh, to have our elections that are required by our constitution. Um, and we come together and we those games that we played, we still play those games and we come together and play the games. And we um, uh, learn about our culture. Our language went to sleep in the 20th century. Our, our last native speakers died in the 1960s. Our last fluent native speakers died in the 1960s. But as of the 1990s, we are revitalizing our language and we're learning our language once again. So that's part of, of what we do when we come together. Um, and of course, over the last couple of years with COVID, we have often come together online um, and uh, had language classes and other gatherings um, together um, on on Zoom or other virtual methods. Um, so we are we are a living people who have a great heritage in what is today Indiana. I'd like to ask about something you just mentioned because I think all over the world there are examples of peoples that uh, have had their language die off. Uh, did you have both a written and a spoken language, or was your language traditionally handed down simply with to the spoken word? And and I'm just curious how that impacted the ability to resurrect your native language. So we have a rich um, store of writings in about our language. In the 1600s, um, Jesuit missionaries came to us. They wanted to, of course, convert us, 
But to do that, they needed to learn our language and other things about us. So they wrote down everything that they saw, that they heard, and they wrote a dictionary of our language. Of course, it's it's Miamiata um, Wenge uh, is what we call our language, or the Miami language, um, and then French translations, but it's there. Um, and so we have all of those documents to use in our revitalization. We also, around the turn of the 20th century, um, linguists and ethnographers started talking to Miami people um, to get information, um, to, to learn our language. One of the people that, um, a man named Jacob Dunn, um, talked to my great-grandfather, Wapanaki Kapwa, also known as Gabriel Godfrey, and um, together they wrote down a, a, a small dictionary of Miami language as it was at the, the turn of the 20th century, as my great-grandfather spoke it, um, and also recorded um, some of our stories, traditional stories that had been handed down uh, through the centuries, um, and some of them in Miami Atawenge in the Miami language, um, as well as in English. Others we only have in English. But we have those stories and recorded, and we have the dictionary. And so um, uh, in the 1980s, a linguist named David Costa uh, needed a topic for his dissertation in linguistics and chose our language. And ever since, he has been helping us to relearn and revitalize our language. Um, at the same time, um, a, a Miami man named Daryl Baldwin also was interested in revitalizing our language, and the two of them um, have really brought the language back to us. Very, very good to hear that you have found a way to keep that alive. I think any any uh, one would say that a history of any peoples anywhere around the world, you know, keeping your language alive is so much a part of that. I'm so so glad to hear that. Uh, I had a chance to just scratch the surface, surface rather, with some of your writings, reading on your, your blog. Where can people find uh, your writings? Um, so the blog, <laughs> in the, the name of the blog is in, in the Miami language and very hard to give orally. Um, but if they, if they Google Miamia, and Miamia is M-Y-A-A-M-I-A, that's a shorter word, Miamia Community Blog, they should be able to find it. And the blog is, it's not my blog entirely. Um, I have a small section of it that I wrote on our removal, um, but there are others, other Miami people who have also contributed articles on our history and on our culture. Um, and so it's a good place to learn about who we are. One last question I always ask any of my guests that I have on a podcast. Uh, is there anything you'd like to say about your tribe, the Miami history, that I did not think to ask? Anything you would want people to know before we end the podcast? I think that it's important to, again, note that Miami people have been in Indiana since long before Europeans came. And often historical documents will say that we came in the 1700s because that's when the Europeans started writing about us. But, but our own stories tell us that we have been here since time immemorial. 
And in spite of our removal, we still have Miami people, including myself, who who live in Indiana. And we live and celebrate and learn our culture and our history as a living Miami people today. Diane Hunter, I'm so, so happy that you agreed to speak with me today. I've learned so much, and I think uh, this is a, a very important part of learning the history of our local area. So, Diane Hunter, thank you once again for giving us uh, some of your time today. Missionary, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this special series of LarryInFishers.com podcasts all about the history of this place we call Fishers on the occasion of our sesquicentennial. Thanks for listening. Please be safe and be kind.